We've taken a hiatus due to COVID, but are back and pumped for 2021. Starting off this year, we're going to do a deep look backward through the lens of Seattle's architectural history. Our first guest this year is Adam Alsobrook, AIA, a registered architect and architectural historian. Adam grew up in Maryland, Georgia, Virginia, and Texas, graduating from the University of Texas in Austin, and he moved here to Seattle in 2014. He's a cultural resource management professional with extensive experience in the rehabilitation of historic buildings, renovations of non-historic buildings, architectural history with experience in local, state, and federal preservation review and compliance. His interests include, of course, old buildings, old neon signs, industrial history, postcard collecting, Masonic architecture, even the history of demolition. So stick around, make sure you're gonna enjoy our show today. So welcome, Adam. Thank you for having me. So curious to learn more about how you developed an interest in architectural history. What's your journey? And <laughs> of course, where did it begin? <laughs> well, probably, uh, probably it began in a, in a little rental house on Berry Street in Decatur, Georgia, which is the, that's the first house that I really remember us living in when I was growing up. How old were you? Uh, probably three or four at that point. Um, and I, I, I've gone back and I've looked at, looked at the house on, on Google Street View, and it doesn't look anything like what I remember it being. But what's uh, really interesting is I remember the stained wood floors and, you know, the windows, you know, very, very tall ceilings, you know, uh, tall doors, you know, transom windows above the doors, you know, just all the kind of the hallmarks of, you know, late 19th, early 20th century architecture. And it was just a just a rental house um, that we lived in after we had moved from the Washington, D.C., from the suburbs of Washington, D.C. Okay. Um, and what's really kind of uh, interesting is, is that I had always been interested in historic buildings, but uh, I ended up, uh, ended up going to you know, architecture school at the University of Texas, and the University of Texas has a very strong modernist vein. I mean, it's a, it's a very modern architecture school, and it's not typically associated with historic preservation or historic buildings, though, um, you know, many of the, the very early influencers of the architectural curriculum at the University of Texas, um, you know, were modernist architects that had settled in Central Texas after World War II, so it was kind of this mid-century modern but uh, it, it went all the way back to, you know, Paul Philippe Cray, um, you know, who, you know, was a classically trained Beaux-Arts architect and actually did one of the campus designs for the University of Texas. But what's really interesting is, is that, you know, even when I was in architecture school, I wasn't really particularly interested in uh, designing the typical, you know, machines in the garden, you know, that architecture students are always tasked with creating, and I, I, I found myself more and more drawn to historic architecture. I had a very traditional, you know, architectural education. It was an excellent architectural education, and I also had the opportunity to take some uh, history courses, architectural history courses from some of the real leading lights mm -hmm. um, of, uh, of architectural history in the United States. And, you know, they were very, very profound influences uh, 
on my research methods in particular, that, those were the first times that I, you know, was ever tasked, you know, with, uh, with doing a paper, you know, a research paper and, you know, having to go and, and look for, you know, primary documents and, uh, and write about the history of a building. So after I graduated from the University of Texas, I ended up working for architecture firms, and then I just kind of ended up doing a whole bunch of other things along the way. Uh, you know, a very, very atypical career path. And ultimately, uh, by strange sort of happenstance, I saw a job posting for a position with the Texas Main Street Design Program at the Texas Historical Commission. And the Main Street Program, you know, many of your your listeners may be familiar with that program. It's a, it's a national trust for historic preservation, you know, program originally, and then it got spun off as its own entity. And it's had a, it had a very profound and positive influence on many small communities in Texas, Texas in particular. I believe at the time when I was in the program, there were 85 cities in Texas that were, you know, both large and small, uh, you know, mostly rural communities. Uh, that were, you know, participants in this. And then for our guests that aren't familiar with the program, what, what's the mission of the program? Absolutely. Uh, the, the mission is really, you know, they have a four-prong approach, um, you know, but the really it's, you know, economic development, uh, which is really important. And it's uh, historic preservation through economic development and how those two, you know, have a relationship with each other. Right. And so it's really about, you know, utilizing the resources that you have in your local community and in particular attempting to use local, local builders, contractors, and architects, uh, if at all possible, to really rehabilitate some of these historic buildings. And in some cases, I mean, they have some really difficult, you know, code challenges, you know, building code challenges to, to overcome, especially as communities become more and more sophisticated and they uh, really start... Uh, you know, taking a hard look at uh, modern code compliance. And put simply, you're dealing with old buildings that have to be adapted yes. for modern use, and there's all these requirements for safety and whatnot, Correct. access, ADA. And so, and it's expensive to retrofit a building. <laughs> and so, yes. but there's a non-economic benefit in, you know, yeah. which I'd love to hear about both the economic and non-economic benefit <laughs> of preserving Main Street buildings, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's really kind of interesting um, so much of our environment, I think, is so transitory. And I don't think we realize how transitory it really is. It's, it's, uh, it's, it borders on the ephemeral. If you use the term ephemeral in its sense of, uh, you know, disposable, not intended to be preserved for a long period of time. And, you know, particularly in those smaller communities, I, many of them were quite prosperous, uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Unfortunately, they were prosperous based on uh, economies that were either not sustainable or no longer are needed or were mechanized, like agriculture, mm -hmm. or were incredibly inequitable uh, to persons of color. You know, just you name it. You know, there were, there were all sorts of, of institutional and, and structural difficulties that needed to be overcome. And so many of these buildings in these towns, some, some of these towns, they hired big city architects to come and design these buildings. Huh. 
very sophisticated buildings. Uh, you know, Carnegie Libraries uh, are one of the ones that, you know, instantly kind of spring to mind. Sure. Uh, Texas has an incredibly rich courthouse. Uh, you know, they have, I'm probably going to get the number wrong, but they have over 250 counties. And every one of those counties has a courthouse. Wow. Um, and I think that the, uh, I, I believe that the only other state that surpasses Texas in the number of courthouses, I think, might be Georgia. But anyway, so what's really kind of interesting is, is that a lot of these, a lot of these buildings in these very modest towns you know, were owned by people of modest means. They perhaps, you know, had been owned, you know, in the same family for generations. And in many cases, they just had an insurmountable problem that they just couldn't solve. And so the purpose of the Main Street Design Program was to really just kind of give them a little bit of a boost to just, you know, show them, you know, how feasible some of these rehabilitation projects are, and also trying to come up with financial incentives, um, you know, federal, state, and local financial incentives to help pay for these very expensive projects. Mm. It's always more expensive than you ever think it's Mm going to be. So you made it here to the West Coast. <laughs> I made it here to the West Coast. Yeah, and so. Um, so I'm really curious. Um, you obviously are someone who's very sensitive to, from the time that you were three, to the buildings and places around you. So I'd like to know what your first encounter here was with, in the Seattle area with, with architecture or a place that was really memorable <laughs> yeah. or that touched you. Yeah, no, that's a, an excellent question. And there's a, there's a couple of places that really spring to mind. Uh, the first time I came to Seattle was in the spring of 2008. And it was when I was working for the Texas Historical Commission. So that was the first time I came to Seattle. And I woke up really early, you know, just couldn't sleep. And I was staying at a hotel, <laughs> you know, one of the hotels, uh, you know, near the Denny Triangle that doesn't exist anymore. You know, that whole string of mid-century modern hotels that yep. were built for the, you know, 1962 Seattle World's Fair. And I got up and put on my raincoat and started walking and you know so I ended up walking all the way from the Denny Triangle all the way to Pioneer Square you know early in the morning and I remember you know walking through Pike Place Market and walking past you know Beecher's Cheese and you know, there's the there's the guy with the paddle stirring the milk curds to make cheese. And I keep walking, keep walking, go down First Avenue, and I end up in Pioneer Square. I didn't have any clue where I was, but uh, one of the buildings that I came upon when I went all the way down to Pioneer Square was uh, was of course King Street Station. And I wasn't able to go inside; it was closed at that early hour, but. One of the things that I brought today was actually uh, just, you know, kind of a, kind of an object to share, uh, you know, is a, uh, it's a historic photograph of King Street Station. Okay. And what's really interesting about this photograph is uh, on the back, it has instructions in German and notations, Pacific Novelty Company. New York, a company in New York, Union Depot, Seattle, Washington, autochromotype, a gelatin autochromotype. And these are instructions for making a postcard. 
And so what's really interesting is, is that this image has been reproduced hundreds of times, this view, uh, and this is basically the, the unedited large format glass plate negative print, huh. you know, of, of King Street Station and just the amazing detail. But um, King Street Station was one of the places that I just remember as just, you know, having a, I mean, wow, <laughs> what, a, what a building. Um, but the other thing that I experienced on that early morning walk and as I made my way back from Pioneer Square, back up towards the Denny Triangle, I saw this extravagant, amazing, weird, borderline preposterous pink elephant rotating in the darkness, lit up in glittering bulbs that moved, you know, these, this incredible, you know, it's this multi-dimensional motion, the signs spinning <laughs> uh -huh. And uh, you know the, the 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 bulbs are you know making it rain on the sign. <laughs> you know it's just it's the absolute most ridiculous, but one of the coolest, most amazing. Not just a sign, but a but a community landmark, and that always, for the entire time that I lived in Seattle up until it got removed, it's like you know that was one of the places that would always just kind of make me smile. You know, even if it had been just a really long, hard day and I was in the car coming back from work or going to work and it was a rainy morning, it's like, you know, there's that preposterous sign, uh -huh. you know, just kind of cheering you up. And uh, it really kind of brought to mind, like, you know, the kind of the transitory nature. And, you know, and of course, just before. to be clear for our guests, you know, this is, we, <laughs> we just, at the end of 2019, yeah. we learned that it was being dismantled, yeah. right? And. Yeah. I have a question for, for our audience. Um, is the University of Washington Special Collections, is that available to the public to use? Oh, absolutely. Um, it takes some prior arrangement, and unfortunately, it's currently closed to researchers because of the ongoing pandemic. But it is going to be a wonderful day indeed when, when researchers are going to be able to, to get back into the special collections because they really do have some amazing resources, particularly architectural documentation of, of buildings here in Seattle. And you have to make prior arrangements, obviously, and, and they, they run a very secure uh, reading room, as they should, you know, when you're dealing with very, very, you know, in many cases, priceless, irreplaceable uh, artifacts and documents. But uh, it is open to the public. And I, I highly encourage not just the University of Washington Special Collections, but MOHAI, their research center, which is located in the Georgetown neighborhood, their archivists and their staff are some of the most helpful and knowledgeable professionals that I've had the pleasure to work with. Open to the public? Open to the public as well. Okay. Who Prior knew? arrangement. Yeah. Yeah. So a question for you on the pink elephant, and sort of it's more of a bigger <laughs> question, is when a, because there's been a lot of hue and cry, at, uh, you know, some would say, oh, it's worthless. Some will say, oh my God, it's beautiful. Don't destroy it, it needs to be preserved, let's put it in a museum. And then there's others that say, if you take it out of that place and put it in a museum or put it in an Amazon building or whatever, it will diminish its value? I mean, I, you know, absolutely. I think, I, I think that's a very, it's a very valid question to show that, you know, uh, one person's treasure is another person's garbage. And some people, you know, don't see it that way. And yeah, there's treasure and garbage also changes over time too, right? or the perception of that. Yeah. You know, exactly. And, and uh, historic signage, 
you know, neon signs, rooftop signs, things of that nature are very difficult from a preservation aspect because in many cases they're, they're corporate, you know, they were corporate manifestations. A corporation, you know, hired a designer to go and design this and hired a contractor to go build it. And some of the things that come to mind are, um, let's see, Baltimore, the sugar sign, Domino Sugar, highly recognizable corporate symbol. Uh, Sitgo in Boston, corporate. Pepsi-Cola in New York, corporate. And an outdated logo at that, you know, historic in its own right. But uh, the preservation of signage is really kind of fraught. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very fraught minefield of pitfalls. And one of the really challenging things is, is that Seattle, Seattle is not necessarily known for its signage, particularly rooftop signage. There are a few exceptions to this. Uh, the Roosevelt Hotel uh, has a wonderful rooftop sign. The Camlin Hotel? The Camlin, which unfortunately is dwarfed by the convention center now. Uh-huh. Um, you know, those are the ones that kind of come to mind. Uh, you know, the Paramount, you know, that sign is just, you know, the sign and the marquee. Pike you Place know, Market is probably the quintessential. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, exactly. I mean, it's like, you know, how, how, how dare I forget the, the, <laughs> the true icon? You're exactly, you're exactly right. But what's really kind of interesting is, is that we don't necessarily have this, this signage experience that, you know, we had the PI globe, you know, the post-intelligencer right. globe. We had the pink elephant. There was a little neon district up there, uh, you know, up in that kind of regrade. How so and why? What was the... Well, I mean, it was... Uh, nightlife? Uh, nightlife, automobile, you know, automobile dealerships. 13 it was, coins. You know, it, yeah, it, I mean, it, precisely. Um, and, you know, there were all these uh, cultural, you know, places. Uh, you know, the, the, the Five Point, you uh -huh. know, the, the, the cafe, yeah. that, that wonderful yeah. dive bar. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I think it, I think that's the oldest continuously operating bar in Seattle, or it has some sort it, of claim. It, it it does have some sort of claim to fame. I think that you know that one and uh, oh, the Merchants Cafe in Pioneer oh, Square yeah. is is another early one. Yeah. Um, you know, but we don't necessarily have this. Uh, we don't have a signage skyline. Now, interestingly enough when I was coming here this morning, that appears to be changing. Because I'm coming across the I-5 bridge, across the Ship Canal, across Lake Union, and I'm looking at the U District. I see a bank sign. Where the heck did that come from? We're not known for high-up corporate building signage. But it, it really is kind of amazing because... I don't think that we realize that we have beloved icons until we lose the beloved icon. So here's my question is, uh, with the pink elephant, is that taking it away from the place where we've always known it to be, what does that do to the value of it, in your opinion, as someone who studies the sort of value of historical artifacts in their place, well, which is kind of the topic of the podcast? <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. I think that in particular, the very specific context of that sign was the fact that it was an automotive context uh -huh. um, it was, it was where the the Battery Street Tunnel used to dump out, and you'd continue on up Aurora. 
it was that weird intersection where it seems like none of the streets were parallel to oh, each other. Oh, it's a mess. Yeah, it's to try to drive mess. through it is a mess still. Yeah. 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 Still a mess. Yeah. Okay. Always was a mess. Still a mess. Even if they had done the Bogue plan, still would have been a mess. And there would have been curved streets in that, which it's like, come on. But anyway, so it was an automotive context. I see. You know, it was a long, low-slung car wash building. And so, you know, the building's not there. But then you take it away from the street environment, you know, the street grid and, you know, passing by it at high speed. Its whole point was to capture the eye of passing motorists. Okay. And to get them to come and wash their big tail-finned car. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and it's just, uh, it's, so, it's tongue-in-cheek. It doesn't take itself seriously. But, you know, you can think of all the other places where there is a pink elephant car wash sign. Okay. You know. Um, but that's the, that's the missing link. It's the connection to the automotive history and the physical grid of the city. And that it sort of tied a beautiful knot around it that was memorable. Right. Sort of that little piece. Right. So I want to just go back a hundred years to and this is a, something that always fascinates me and you know a lot of times I'll be driving around in some Seattle streets, Woodlawn North of the in the kind of Wallingford neighborhood is, comes to mind. It's a super wide street. Underneath the pavement, you can see those uh, streetcar tracks yep. that are just sort of crackling up the pavement. Yep. Then you know you realize, wow, this is a really wide street. So other stuff happened here. There's actually storefronts that are now converted to little apartments that were probably stores. Right. So there's a whole different type of activity here because of the streetcar system. I recently saw a little token from the Rainier Valley streetcar. Yes. Apparently there was a streetcar that ran down Rainier Valley. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. So I'm just kind of curious, um, maybe for our listeners, what was here in terms of streetcars and how does the physical sort of grid and layout of the streets sort of manifest that? Right. And what happened to it? Um, well, what's really interesting is, is that, you know, we continue to have these vestiges of the streetcar system, particularly, I mean, let's take, for instance, the area that we're sitting in right now, which is, you know, Seattle's University District, you know, which used to be named Brooklyn. It was the Brooklyn Platt, you know, so James Moore, you know, platted Brooklyn in uh, 1890, and there was a a few years later, I believe it was 1893, 1894, the, a very, very, very rickety uh, streetcar line uh, was extended from downtown up to the to up to the U district. These were privately owned. These were privately owned. Um, the The Seattle streetcar transportation system didn't get didn't become municipally owned until well into the 20th century, and I forget the exact date right now. But there was this incredible network of primarily streetcars. And there was also an electric interurban that connected Seattle with Tacoma. And uh, that was built by primarily Eastern transit interests. I believe that was a Stone and Webster project. And then the Rainier Valley streetcar was... If I recall, that went from downtown Seattle to Renton. I may be incorrect in that. I'm trying, I'm trying to remember the map in my head. There's just for everybody who's listening, there's an excellent book. It's very, very rare right now. Um, it's hard to come across, but I was fortunate enough to score a copy of it recently. Um, and it's Leslie Blanchard wrote a history of the Seattle streetcar system. 
that is just absolutely amazing. And it's got maps, you know, of all these different electric streetcar systems. But so to really answer your question, it's like, you know, these streetcars, like the one that went from, you know, went up to Woodland Park, where the zoo is, you know, these were really big uh, drivers of development. So it seems like the real estate developers had an interest in having streetcars bringing people out into their, you know, suburban areas. Right. Yeah. I think that, you know, we don't really necessarily think about it these days because all of our streets are paved. But if you think about the late 19th and early 20th century, many of the streets in the, in the, the farther out suburbs of Seattle were unpaved. And it's raining today. Could you imagine, like, you know, traveling through that mud? You know, even in a, even in a car, you know, it's pretty hard. You know, horse, wagon, you know, car. So the, you know, the streetcars were a very welcome amenity. Some of them were better than others. Uh, some of the early systems, you know, kind of collapsed into receivership and eventually became municipally owned. Before municipal ownership, it's like they passed into uh, the ownership of electrical companies, you know, who drove the not not just the creation of the streetcar system, but also the backbone of our utility system, you know, in the early 20th century. Huh. And so kind of where the streetcar went, electricity followed. But then the electricity stayed, but the streetcars more or less disappeared. They more or less disappeared. Um, they were replaced relatively early on. I, the The year that sticks out in my mind, and I may be incorrect about this, I want to say... 1936, 1937, really kind of wholesale, you know, we're ripping these out. And then we're, we're going to go with the trackless trolleys, you know, which, um, interestingly enough, some of the trackless trolleys are actually King County landmarks. You know, so Metro owns historic trackless trolley, you know. uh, What's a trackless trolley? It's a a lovely bus. An electric bus. Okay. An electric bus. Okay. Oh, with those cable things. With the, you know, with the... And uh, where do you, where do you, where does one on, in our audience view these historic landmark trackless trolleys? Uh, I, they actually run them occasionally. Okay. Uh, they they have a whole fleet of historic buses, uh, from what I understand. Fun. And I I don't think that they've run them for a while, uh, of course, because COVID is just really wreaking havoc with everything. Um, but what's really interesting is is that you know places like the Rainier Valley, you know, had a double track relatively high-speed streetcar going down it and then a road on either side so it was like double track and then road on either side and treacherous is the 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 newspapers in the 1920s like have all sorts of you know this is a death trap this is this is dangerous you know people were wrecking their cars and it's just you know it was kind of mayhem and uh you know, people used to get run over by it all the time. Um, the inner urban line from Seattle to Tacoma, it's like it was a three rail, you know, third rail electric power system. And, you know, livestock and people used to touch the third rail all oh, the boy. time. It was just out in a field. And you would be electrocuted. <laughs> You'd be electrocuted. I mean, it's just, you know, kind of a, an industrial environment that, you know, would be completely unacceptable in, in today's environment. Got it. But the history of Seattle streetcars is immensely fascinating, and so much of it has just disappeared. But even even in Beacon Hill, where I live, it's like they were doing a utility project recently, and they dug up streetcar tracks. So it's like I have a 
I have a Seattle streetcar railroads bike <laughs> that I didn't uh-huh. didn't think I was going to end up with, but it just kind of ended up tossed up in the front yard, like an old ar- yeah. piece yeah. of archaeology, yeah, a, you know, little you know piece of iron. Oh, fascinating! Yeah, so, oh. I mean, it's huh. okay. They were just going to throw it away, so I was like, well, if it's in your junk pile, I guess I'm going to I'm going to take it. So. so you mentioned that the university district where we are here at Jack mm-hmm. Studios is um, was originally called Brooklyn. Correct. So just kind of curious in general, as a real estate broker, I look through the old plot maps and I see that the names originally given to these neighborhoods are not the, what they were originally given. And it's very confusing because I never had seen those words, you know, used to describe Fremont or Wallingford or uh, the central area, whatever. So what is, um, how, how do these neighborhoods, how did their names evolve and who ultimately got to decide what they were called? <laughs> uh, it's re- it's really kind of that's a that's a very interesting aspect uh, of Seattle history. the The university district, in particular, um, you know, as you noted, uh, it was you know James Moore platted it as the Brooklyn addition to Seattle. And there were actually was it Brooklyn named after Brooklyn, New York? That is correct. Okay, that is, that is correct, and so. He very much envisioned it as the city, the city across the water from the city. Okay. You know, just like Brooklyn is, you know, separated by Manhattan. Yeah. And he 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 had a very grandiose vision. I mean, that's... I would say the I-5 bridge is nothing like the Brooklyn Bridge in <laughs> no, terms of majesty. No, <laughs> no, no. Uh, but it's far superior to the original bridge that, <laughs> that was there. Um you know, the bridge that was there previous to the university bridge that was built in the early 19-teens was a very, very rickety affair huh. that, that always terrified people when they crossed it. But uh, so, you know, so James Moore plats the Brooklyn edition. But what's really interesting is, is that, you know, the University of Washington was basically put, you know, just to the east of where we sit now, and that institution originally located in downtown Seattle, where, you know, the university tracked, you know, that section of real estate in downtown Seattle was where the University of Washington was formerly located. And then it moved, you know, to land that was set aside. Um, you know, that particular section of land is the section that was traditionally set aside, you know, under the various land apportionment acts, you know, the national grid system. Okay. That was always destined to be an educational institution, um, and so uh, if if my mind serves me correctly, it was Arthur Denny, you know, who was instrumental in in getting the university moved. Edmund Meany, who was a you know early uh, writer, history professor, historian you know, hotel named after him just a couple of blocks from here. Right. You know, all these were were players, you know, in the, in that university area. But what was interesting is, is that it, in the case of Brooklyn, it was the streetcar that ultimately caused the name of the neighborhood to change. How? Because the streetcar stopped at 42nd and University Way, which it th- it then was uh, 14th. It was 14th Avenue Northeast. And so the streetcar stopped there, and there was a little shelter. And uh, there was a little restaurant, you know, kind of a little greasy spoon, and a uh, like a boarding house. And so this became kind of the prime intersection in what people started calling 
the university station. And what's really interesting is, is that it went from being the streetcar stop to being the name of the post office branch. And the post office branch, University Station, was actually served for a period of time by a streetcar post office. And I've got a photo of one of those streetcar post offices, and it was a little railway post office, little streetcar that would just kind of chug around like something out of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and delivering mail to all all these areas. But it became University Station. And people eventually referred to it as the station. And then the university came along, and then they started calling it university or the university district. And so today, Brooklyn lives on in Brooklyn Avenue. Right. And the plat, you know, is still recorded down at King County as the Brooklyn edition. But the area that we sit in, we refer to as the university district. So it's really from popular usage that the neighborhood was named. Yeah. yeah and it, that must be the case across the city because there's many neighborhoods that historical names no longer are used or their plat names. That's right. I mean, and, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting exercise. It's like some architectural historians, you know, and, and, and other uh, cultural historians have pieced together, you know, the plat maps and they show kind of the development of an area over time. You know, north of the Ship Canal, where we are right now, was a a very interesting chain of of property ownership uh, over time. Um, but James Moore was not the first one to plot here. You know, so it's really interesting how the names evolved. I want to shift a little bit to one of your passions, which are Masonic structures, just because you've researched and published a lot on it. I have a confession for the audience. I'm a Mason. I, um, it all started in Chicago when I was in art school, um, where I was hired to restore about five massive rooms in what's now the Intercontinental Hotel. It was all this really cool iconography, which I learned came from masonry. And then I ended up enlisting uh, some <laughs> gentlemen from the local lodge to tell me about it. And then I... Ultimately, it would just seem a natural thing to, to join. Um, and they ex- then they explained, well, we can't really right. invite you to do that. You have right. to kind of ask yourself. It was kind of an epiphany, and it was really quite educational. So, um, But tell me, and you, are, I understand you're also a Mason. Yes. But tell me about your interest in Masonic structures and kind of the, the scope of your research, which is really, really deep, and so we won't have time today to go through <laughs> it all. Course. Of but course. But I'd love to know, you know what your interest in Masonic, you know, apart from Masonry itself. Right. Um, it really it really goes back to when I worked for the Texas Historical Commission, um, and I would travel principally to North Texas was the region that I reviewed when I worked for the Division of Architecture. And, you know, there were Masonic lodges in virtually every every town still, um, you know, and a, and a building that goes along with it. And some of them are, you know, very plain, some of them are very grand, some of them are very old. Um, a, uh, a college classmate of mine actually is a member of Holland Lodge Number no. 1 in Houston, and that's Sam Houston's lodge, the lodge where he received the charter, you know, under the oak tree in Brazoria County. But uh, in Texas, there were just a, an amazing number of just really stunning Masonic buildings, Some of them are quite bizarre. In particular, (laughs) 
the Grand Lodge of Texas headquarters in Waco, which is a uh, mid-century modern interpretation of King Solomon's temple uh, with the Boaz and Jacob columns out front, Goodness. You know, the, the two brazen pillars. Mm-hmm. But one of the buildings that I visited uh, in a professional capacity uh, was a 1940 Masonic temple in Dallas. And it was an art modern extravaganza, you know, just uh, incredibly streamlined, spare, but beautiful rooms with built-in furniture. Just, just, I mean, these very quiet, contemplative oases, you know, away from the hustle and bustle of that particular busy street just outside. Huh. So... I'd always been kind of interested in these weird buildings, like so, and some of them, like if if you if you go back and look, like Washington State is not necessarily known for its bizarre, like more, kind of the more bizarre uh, Masonic buildings. Um, so one thing I just wanted to say is that masonry, <laughs> uh, part of the sort of iconography is architecture. So yes. it's sort of a it's sort of a Pseudo history or history of sort of the, the you know that going back to King Solomon right. that um, God is sort of the ultimate architect right. and that we sort of manifest godliness through designing buildings right is that is that you know yeah. it's a very simplification yeah I mean it's a it, but it's a very apt description um, so there's extravagance and play and fancifulness in a lot abs- of the Masonic structures yeah. even though it sort of purports to be a very serious based around the kind of a character traits and right. fraternity, a lot of the ways in which the architecture is realized is highly fanciful. Yes. And in a way, maybe almost like postmodern in the sense that it's a playful. In the, in the At the Art Institute of Chicago, it, each of these rooms that I restored the artwork was a different sort of era in architectural and art history. Right. And then at the very top of it was this sort of Orientalist cupola where you could go up there and survey the entire city. It was just truly remarkable and really weird. Yeah, I mean, totally weird. But what's really kind of fascinating is the interpretation that architects, kind of the creative license that they took in designing a lot of these buildings and what their interpretation of, you know, what a quote-unquote air quotes, Masonic building. Like, you know, what do these Masonic buildings look like? And in some cases, the the ones that typically stand out in most people's minds are Egyptian revival. The Egyptian revival ones, they're rare. I've come across some images, you know, that, you know, they were kind of all over the place. So there's Egyptian revival. Like exotic revivals Mm -hmm. were very popular. You know, it's like, you know, kind of things that were vaguely called like Byzantine right. or, you know, Mediterranean yep. or, you know, just all these different kind of revivalist architectural styles that were just over the top, particularly shrine buildings, like, you know, the uh-huh. the, the shrine, you know, the shriners, the shrine buildings were just kind of completely over the top um, and much more playful, but they really just kind of run the gamut. Seattle's main Masonic temple which is at Harvard and Pine, which was designed by Saunders and Lawton and completed in 1916. Um, Saunders and Lawton were both Masons. The competition for the Masonic Temple in Seattle was only open to Masons in good standing. So you had to be an architect who also had to be a Mason. 
it reads like a who's who of architects. Can you mention a few in, names? In Seattle. Uh, Saunders and Lawton, Hugh Grant Fay, Harlan Thomas, Beb and Gould, who ended up uh, designing the Green Lake Masonic Temple in the early 1920s oh, in yeah. Green Lake. So oh, yeah. that's, that's a Beb and Gould. Uh-huh. You know, so, uh, you know, it's just kind of this who's who's list. I think there were 13, 13 14, or 15 entries in this competition. Wow. But anyway, these architectural styles... For better or for worse, they are they are about, you know, providing the place where Masons go and do their what they call work. You know, it's like it's it's ritual. It's basically a business meeting. <laughs> you know, let's yeah. you know, let's let you know, to, if you want to cut right to the chase, it's basically a business meeting, but but uh, some of it is uh you know, it's very ancient, you know. Yeah, what I found very touching having participated in some of those in Chicago was just the a level of respect, the mutual respect that is given to everyone regardless of their economic station or, right. you know, that was sort of my big takeaway. Right. I so, mean, it, you know, it, it particularly American Freemasonry, it's very much in, uh, it's very much set in those Enlightenment ideals that yeah. our country was founded upon. But, you know, Washington State, perhaps the grandest of the Masonic temples in Washington State is the one that's in Yakima. Uh, And it's this tremendous downtown building. So my wife used to work in civil legal aid and Northwest Justice Project had their offices in that building. Oh, really? And when I was preparing for our conversation today, I was reading (laughs) through your articles and I said, oh my God, that's my favorite building in downtown Yakima. So what it is, it's this kind of like the Main Street's um, kind of reference at the early part of the podcast is that there's this massive investment into this sort of very rich, high quality architecture in places that you would never expect it. And that's yeah. sort of... That, anyway, go on. No, Tell me about that building. This will definitely be a subject of, of a future article because it really is just amazing when, when you really think about it. It's like, you know, 1910, was imported from Jerusalem. And what's a keystone, again, for those of us that are less architecturally inclined? Basically, the the stone at the top of the arch that, you know, kind of supports each side of the arch as it comes together. And so, you know, it it basically holds the arch together. It uses gravity. And it came from Jerusalem. It got misplaced. Uh, There was, was, you know, reading, reading the accounts of the construction of these buildings. So you go from something that's, you know, just tremendously covered in the press, you know, just ad nauseum, you know, just every single little thing is reported, architect, builder, features of the building, you know, interior photos, you know, everything. Um, Why is that? Is it there's a monumental? They're, you know, monumental, uh, you know, in some cases, it was because the architect was a very good self-promoter, uh-huh. and so constantly put him at, put himself out in the in the uh, the building trade publications, which we're very lucky to have had a really good building trade publication, uh, specific builder and engineer. But the, you know, just uh, these incredible buildings. Another completely extravagant, over-the-top structure is the Temple Theater in Tacoma. 
you know, it was a movie theater, it had lodge rooms, it had banquet facilities, it was, you know, Scottish Rite, and just, I mean, it was it was everything, I and mean, it was like the happening place to be wow. in 1920s. So these um, were social hubs. Yes. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, and then there were very, uh, you know, modest structures. Uh, I belong to University Lodge number 141, which is literally a stone's throw from where we're sitting right now in the university district. We've been here uh, in the in the U district since 1904. Uh, we were chartered in 1905. And uh, our building is a predominantly two-story with a three-story portion building front. Um, but ours is a very, very relatively modest exterior building, but our claim to fame are our murals in our lodge room, uh, which were painted by an artist by the name of Ernest Norling in 1950. And we paid artist Norling $2,000 for those murals. And we have four walls in our lodge room that are painted with scenes of the, of the Middle East and architecture of Byzantium and all these different, uh, you know, early architectural styles and sand and oases. I mean, it's just a, it's a real, it's a real kind of over-the-top extravaganza. But for, but for those that are interested, Ernest Norling also painted the mural at the Husky Union building, okay. um, which depicts the history of the founding of the University of Washington. Huh. And there are, uh, one of the recent uh, talks that I gave to St. John's Lodge number nine, uh, which is the oldest lodge in Seattle, was chartered in 1860. There are several masons in the lower left-hand corner laying the cornerstone of uh, what is now known as Denny Hall, uh, you know, the former administration building that was constructed in 1895, designed by Brother Saunders, <laughs> an architect, yeah. you know, Saunders and Lawton. Mm -hmm. So, you know, masons figured very prominently in the early architectural history of Seattle. Amazing. One other topic is the stigma, like the positive and negative aura that kind of surrounds places by virtue of kind of what happened there and the people mm, that live there. And I was just kind of curious, there's a kind of intangible aura that sometimes places will have. And I just wonder, is that some, does that figure into your kind of historical assessment of places well, or, mean, or not? Or is it just I mean, um, it, hocus it, pocus? I mean, it, cer it certainly does. I mean, I... Uh... There, there are just some places, I mean, that you, say you're walking in a, in a city um, for work. I just recently did a survey down in Eugene, Oregon. I had never been to Eugene, Oregon before. And you kind of get a sense, like, you know, when you're walking around, you know, like what, what kind of seems to kind of stick out and then what kind of recedes into the background. And part of that is just kind of this intangible um, I think I think that that's one of the that's one of the challenges that we do have, you know, when we work in cultural resource management and historic preservation is there are certain intangibles. So isn't a property that can qualify as historical both a function of the architecture, i.e. the physical thing, but also who occupied the property or something that happened it, there? When you talk about National Register criteria, you have Criterion A, which is kind of association with broad patterns of history. Criterion B is association with a person that's significant to our past. Criterion C is architecture, you know, so you're looking at, you know, is it the work of a master? Does it have high artistic values? Is it a representative example of its uh, architectural style? 
One that we typically don't get into when we're in the above ground realm is, of course, archaeology, which is criterion D, or a site which has the potential to yield further historical or prehistorical information. Great. So, you know, it, it is certainly, uh, you know, the associations with people, the association with events. Um, I mean, there are just some places that, you know, by general agreement are historic um, and were the scene of historic events. The U.S. Capitol building, the, the White House, the Washington Monument, things like that. But uh, there are other places that are, it's much less immediately agreed upon that these are historic places. And I think that's one of the challenges that we're having right now, you know, as preservationists, you know, as, you know, historic preservationists and also as cultural resource managers um, is we used to all be about integrity. And, you know, the resource had to have integrity to really, you know, convey what we call convey its significance. And by integrity, I think what you're saying is the, it wasn't, hasn't been fuddled with right. or changed over time? Right. Exactly, okay. exactly. So, you know, and now the conversation, you know, because that had the unintended consequence of really preserving the big fancy houses of rich white people. <laughs> um, it's just true. I mean, it, we went through a period of time where it's like, I, I cannot tell you how many house museums we had. Um, so that's, that's shifting. So it's totally, it's so totally, where's the shift? It, it, it's totally shifting to, you know, these more intangible cultural associations. So what's a great example of that sort of, uh, you know, Pioneer Square used to be where uh, gay culture was centered in Seattle. The Jackson Street Corridor used to be where black musicians played because they weren't allowed to play anywhere else. Um, you know, things like this, you know, things that are not outwardly, you know, it, the, the building doesn't necessarily scream, I'm significant. Right. Pay attention to me, I'm significant. And so... So it, there's more work for you as uh, someone... A historian yes. or as just a member of the public who enjoy, you know, to enjoy it in sort of pulling apart some of the layers. Yes. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, we all can kind of fall into the trap of just saying, well, that's a really pretty building. It's easy to do, <laughs> you know, and, and there's something about, you know, pretty building, you know, attractive building equals historic landmark. Right. Like, the, you know, that that's, you know, even when you start talking about like what, what buildings deserve to be quote unquote saved, yeah. deserve to be rehabilitated, or the ones that could probably, you know, not necessarily be given that treatment. Gotcha. And so it really is an evolution. I mean, you know, it's it, it's something that I you know, I of course, you know, struggle with as a professional in this field. And, you know, anything of course that I say is, you know, this is my own opinion. <laughs> but um you know, the last time we really took a long, serious look at, you know, when you, when you think about it, the National Historic Preservation Act was originally written into law in 1966. It is itself historic. Right. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, because it's over 50 years of age. Um, but I think that my personal opinion is, is that the way that we approach historic preservation... Uh, or cultural resource management, or 
you know, cultural conservation is probably a better phrase. That we, I mean, we should really be using a phrase other than historic preservation. Uh -huh. Historic preservation has a lot of negative connotations, some of which are justified and some of which are not justified. Because um, they reflect the bias of the people yes, writing the history. The, 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 yeah, that is, that is correct. Yeah. And so, I mean, and, and that's, you know, Seattle suffers from that, you know, all the way back to, you know, the Duwamish people. And, you know, when, you know, Pike Place Market and Pioneer Square, like when those were, you know, starting to be recognized as historic districts, it's like there were, there were other parts of town that were just conveniently ignored, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, just, you know, completely written out of the equation. And therefore, we've lost a lot of that historic fabric. Um, Central District, you know, particularly, you know, uh, properties that are associated with people of color, you know, the labor movement. I mean, any, any, any sort of thing. It's just there, there are these kind of layers. There, there are these layers of Seattle history that are just kind of missing. And unfortunately, the people who experience that and could be informants to us are either already dead or are we're losing that touch to the relatively recent past. It should be a more evolving field of study, cultural resource management or cultural conservation or, or things like this. And it, uh, it, it really deserves another look about, you know, how we rank buildings you know it's like we we currently have this very hard it's either eligible or it's not eligible <laughs> you know and you know great britain does it in an entirely different way they have grades you know so you know they have th i believe it's like three grades of buildings you know they're all considered historic but the way that they're treated depends on the grade of your building um, but, uh, I think the, the main takeaway is, you know, that I would like to leave with your listeners is the fact that number one, this is a participatory progress that needs to have more input from the public. Um, it needs to have people who are participating in these proceedings, decisions in, in these decisions. It's like, these are public meetings. Everybody gets all up in arms about the design review of big new downtown buildings, but they very frequently will just, it'll be the kind of the same few people that get up in arms about historic buildings. And you just need to really pay attention to this. And then also don't be afraid to share what your experience is on, on these, because I may not have access to the information that you have access to, you know, and, um, in many ways, it just makes for a richer document. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for having me. To learn more about Adam and even download his paper that was just published a few months ago on the Masonic Building in the U District, visit adamalsobrook.net. This is Edward Krigsman. It's so good to connect with you. Join us next time for a conversation with modernist architect Chris Patano of Patano Studios. He has designed a handful of remarkable homes and also public and community buildings throughout the West Coast, places that you no doubt will want to explore yourself as the pandemic winds down and we all get physically out and about. So join us for a conversation with Chris next time. Thank you for listening to EK on the Go. You can subscribe to us anywhere you get your podcasts. 
And of course, send your questions or requests to edwardk at ekreg.com. And if there's a place that matters to you, please tell us about it. We'd love to hear your stories. Until then, stay safe, stay well. We'll talk soon. Thank you.